Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. The book of Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 5 through 9 and considering the end of the incarnation. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, the end of the incarnation. Give attention to God's holy word. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice to be in your presence and to be participants in your holy worship. And we ask now that as we come to this act of worship, this element of worship in preaching, that you indeed would make it to be the primary means of grace that in your grace you would pour out the Holy Spirit in our hearts that we might see and hear wonderful things contained in your law. And we pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if you have ever had little children or have been a little child, you probably asked the question or have been asked the question, why? Why this and why that? Mommy, why do the birds sing? Daddy, Why does this or that happen? Children are uh, full of questions of why. And really, this is the ultimate question of life, isn't it? Why do things happen the way that they happen? Now, there's two ways to answer the question why. There's uh, the contemporary way or the modern way of answering the question why and simply giving a material or biological answer. This is what the modern world is based upon. This is really what the theory of evolution is based upon. The the grand question that men ask, what is the meaning of life? Why are we alive? And the modern evolutionist, modern society, answers the question biologically. We are simply descended from monkeys. And over this long process of evolutionary selection, we have ended up here, and that's why mankind is alive. You can answer that question biologically. The older way, the biblical way of answering that question, however, is religiously or morally. When the religions of the world ask the question, Why does man exist? When the scriptures ask this question, why does man live? They answer the question religiously from a moral perspective. And this answer is contained for us in the shorter catechism. Question and answer number one. Perhaps the most important question in the entire uh, body that Westminster has given to us. What is the chief end of man. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But understand that that question of the catechism is answering the question, why? Why does man exist? Why does man live? Why has God put man on the earth? Now, the title of this sermon may have taken some by surprise. What does the pastor mean by saying the end of the incarnation? Why did he put it that way? Sometimes the word end can mean the the final point, 
the completion of something. When you come to the end of the day, that day is over. But the word end can also mean the purpose, the goal, the answer to the question, why? That's the way our shorter catechism uses it. That's the way I'm using it in the title of this sermon today. And what we find in this passage is that the author of Hebrews answers for us the question, why the incarnation? Why did the Son of God take on flesh? Why did this happen? Now, sometimes we answer the question correctly, but not fully. Sometimes we answer the question by saying, to save us from our sins. That is a correct answer. That is a biblical answer. I'm not downplaying that answer. But we need to go further. We need to ask ourselves, why is sin such a tragedy for the human race? Sin is such a tragedy for the human race because by Adam's sin, he forfeited his proper place as God's under king. He forfeited the dominion that God had given him over creation. Sin resulted in Adam dying and no longer reigning. Therefore, when Christ became incarnate, he came to deliver us from our sins so that we might reign with him once again. The end of the incarnation is not only deliverance from sin, but it is fully to restore humanity to its proper place. And that's what we find in this passage, that the end of the incarnation is that Christ should reign in righteousness. The end of the incarnation is that Christ should reign in righteousness. Now, this passage is very interesting for us for another reason. Not merely the doctrine that it teaches, but the way in which this passage proves its doctrine. And as we look at this passage, I want to pay attention to how the author of Hebrews proves and uh, expounds the end of the incarnation. There are three things to notice in the way that the author of Hebrews works here. First, in verse 5, he just asserts the doctrine. He gives us a doctrinal statement. And then in verses 6 through 8, he cites Scripture. And then in verse 9, he applies Scripture. So we have doctrine, Scripture, and application. This is the method that the author of Hebrews uses. He states his doctrine, and then he cites the Scripture that proves his doctrine, and then he applies that Scripture to prove the doctrine. So as we begin, we begin looking at verse 5 and the doctrine that he states. Now, in verse 5, he states this doctrine negatively. What do I mean by that? I mean that he doesn't state positively, Christ is the Lord of the world to come. He says, the world to come is not under the control of angels. The world to come was not put under the authority of the angels, implying, along with the rest of his argument in chapter 1 and 2, Christ is greater than the angels. We've been seeing this all throughout chapter 1. Christ is the only begotten Son of the Father. Christ is the proper object of worship because the glory of God shines in Christ. Christ has been made the King of the angels. At the beginning of chapter 2, the author then says... We need to give heed to Christ because of this great salvation, because he is greater than the angels. Now in this passage, he's going to start proving how great this salvation is. And the greatness of the salvation of Christ is that he is the king of the world to come. Not only of this world, but of the age to come. Look at what the author says in verse 5. 
He says he has not put the world to come. Very interesting way of phrasing this in verse 5 of chapter 2. He speaks about the world that will be. This is a way of speaking about the new heavens and the new earth. The word that he uses here for world is a very interesting word. It's not the cosmos. John 3.16, the author uh, John writes, says that God so loved the world. Well, in that passage, it's the word cosmos. The word cosmos refers to the creation as an organized whole. Refers to the, the glory of the whole system of God's creation. The word the author uses here is not that same word. The word used here translates to inhabited house. Uh, the, the, the term inhabited house refers not to the creation or a world simply as a glorious system, but it refers to the world as an elegant mansion inhabited by a numerous amount of people. And so the world to come is going to be an inhabited house. You know, in John 14, Christ said, I go to prepare a place for you, for in my Father's house are many dwelling places. In my Father's house are many mansions, and I'm preparing a place for you. Now, we're given a picture of what the new heavens and the new earth will be like just in these simple words, the world to come. It, 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 when you imagine heaven and you place your hope on the world to come, how do you view it? How do you think it is going to be? Well, from this passage and other passages, we know that there's going to be a vast multitude of the redeemed from the world of men inhabiting the new heavens and the new earth. And this really is uh, the way it should be, isn't it? I think instinctively we understand this. You know, in my street, we live in an older neighborhood of Lynchburg. Um, most of the houses were built before 1935, and so a lot of them are getting on 100 years old. And they're great houses. The architecture is it's classic American architecture. They're well-built homes. And one of the sad things you find on my street, though, is that you have these well-built, handsome homes that are completely empty. Nobody lives there. Nobody goes in and out the front door. There's never a light on in the window. There's never children playing in the front yard that, that belong in that house. And all of us see that and we grieve instinctively because the purpose of a house is for people to live. Likewise, the new creation, its purpose is for men to live there. It's for men to populate. It's for men to fill it, even as God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Well, this world to come is going to be filled with all of the redeemed. The, the author goes on and says, this world to come is that of which we are speaking. So in the book of Hebrews, what, what the author is trying to get us to set our minds upon is this heavenly hope, this new heavens and new earth, to set our eyes upon the thing that God is preparing for us. Now, it's important to keep this in mind as we are breaking into the book of Hebrews, and as we go forward in the book of Hebrews, remember what the purpose of Hebrews is. The purpose of Hebrews is to encourage and exhort Christians to endure the sufferings of this life. The purpose of Hebrews is to encourage Christians to endure. And he sets before us once again the hope that we have in Christ. This will come up later and later. Uh, this will come up later on in the book. Chapter 3 and 4, he calls this the rest, the eternal rest that we have. In chapter 11 and 12, he calls this the city of the living God, the city whose builder and maker is God, this inhabited house that we are moving towards. And this is a great motivation to continue, isn't it? I one time ran a, uh, uh, um, a 5K with my aunt in Chicago. And this 5K, it's called the Turkey Trot. It's the Thanksgiving 5K. Some of you have run races before. And if you run a race, there comes a point at which, about midway, you may start getting tired. And, and you start battling in your mind, 
do I really want to finish this thing? I've gone pretty far. Do, do I really want to go all the way? And then as you come closer to the end and, and round the corner, you begin to see the finish line. And what do you see at the finish line? Family, friends, the crowd, a cold cup of water, all sitting there for you, waiting for you to cross the line. And it's interesting, isn't it? When people are running races and they can see the goal, they get a burst of energy. They keep going. They keep enduring. Likewise, brothers and sisters, the book of Hebrews is setting before you what we are moving towards. It's, it's asking you to raise your eyes beyond this life and see what awaits you in God's grace. This is what the book is speaking about. And finally, the world to come has not been put in subjection to the angels. Now, at this point, the author simply states his doctrine, and then he's going to move in to proving it. But there's a couple of applications here for us just at this point. Martin Luther once famously said that the meaning of the Word of God is the Word of God. The meaning of the Word of God is the Word of God. We need to recognize that the way Scripture communicates to us is that it first gives us the very words of God, but because they are given to us in the words of men, and because of the way human language works, we can draw conclusions from God's Word. We can make doctrinal statements that are grounded in God's Word, and those doctrinal statements are just as authoritative as the words on the page. Notice that the author says it has not been put into subjection to angels. He's drawing a conclusion from the doctrine he stated earlier, specifically at the end of verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 13. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? That verse explicitly says, Christ is the king. Christ is sitting at God's right hand. Christ is reigning until his enemies are made the footstool for his feet. Well, if that's what the scripture explicitly says, chapter 2, verse 5 is a good and necessary consequence from that. And it's just as authoritative as uh, chapter 1, verse 13. Well, why is this important? couple of reasons. I only give you two. One, creeds and confessions come to us in this way. For instance, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. That is a doctrinal statement that comes from the Scriptures, and it is a good and necessary consequence from the Scriptures. That's just as authoritative as the explicit Scripture itself. Secondly, the Westminster Confession of Faith is another document, another confession, that comes to us in the same way. And if the doctrine is good, meaning it comes from the Scriptures by a good and necessary consequence, it is just as authoritative as explicit Scripture. There are many doctrines that we believe that come to us in this way. The Trinity... Baptism of infants, uh, the order of Presbyterian worship and how we try to worship the Lord, none of these things are expressly stated in the Scriptures, but they are good and necessary consequences that come from the Scriptures. Therefore, they are God's will. Therefore, they are authoritative. But just as the author does, so we also need to do is be able to prove our doctrine from the Scriptures and show how it comes from the Scriptures. That's what the author goes on to do next. He moves on in verse 6 to cite a passage that proves the doctrine he wants to prove. He cites Psalm 8, pardon me, Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6, and he says, One testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? Now, it's very important to notice how the author cites this passage in verse 6. 
He calls this a testimony. This is the same word that you find in other places of Scripture for a witness. He cites it as a witness or a testimony that supports his truth. The Scriptures are the witness of God to man. They serve like witnesses in a court case. Their testimony can be cited to prove the truth. That's how the author uses it here. Notice also the passage that he cites in Psalm 8. Turn back with me to Psalm 8 to see it in the original context. Psalm 8, in the original context, it is a psalm of David. And in verse 1, David writes, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength, because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? What David is giving expression to here in that he is praising the Lord for his works of creation. And as he looks at the works of the heavens, he marvels at the glory of God, recognizing that the starry sky... And the host that he sees had to be made by a God who is more glorious than the heavens themselves. Notice what he says in verse 1. You have set your glory above the heavens. Your praise is beyond what we can see. We only see, as he says in verse 3, the heavens, the work of your fingers... Interesting way of putting it, isn't it? What, what David is saying, you know, my daughter and I, uh, we got one of these little, these little projects from Home Depot. If you go in there with your kids, a friendly Home Depot employee might give you one of these projects. They're free. They're very simple. It's a little bird feeder. has about five pieces of wood, maybe ten nails. You whack it together, put some paint on it, and you can put bird seed in it. It takes about ten minutes. It's a neat little craft to do. That's how David is describing the heavens in relation to God. They're his handicraft. They're they're him banging together a bird feeder, and it takes no effort on his part. They're the work of his fingers. And he sees these, he recognizes they're the work of God's fingers. How great must God be? And then he moves on to talk about man. What is man that you are mindful of him? You who create the heavens in an instant. Why would you consider man? Why would you think of man? Why would you, as he says in verse 4, visit man? Now there's a very important truth here that David is expressing. And this is a truth that's expressed in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, No need to turn there, but in the Westminster Confession of Faith... Chapter 7, it speaks about God's covenant with man. If you want to look there, it's on page 676 in the back of the blue hymnal. Chapter 7 of God's covenant with man. Now keep in mind what David is saying. O God, you are so far beyond the heavens in glory. What is man that you should be mindful of him and visit him? The Westminster Divines say this. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures, men and angels, owe obedience to him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward. But by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. What are the divines saying? The divines are expressing the doctrine that God by nature, simply by the fact of who he is and who you are, is so far beyond us 
that we would have no hope of enjoying him unless he voluntarily made a covenant with us. Unless he came down in his love and grace and made us promises by which we could enjoy him as our blessedness forever. Now understand one important thing. This is true even before the fall. The necessity of the covenant is not because of sin. The necessity of the covenant is because of nature. It's because of who God is and who we are. Because we are merely the handicraft of his fingers. Because we are so low compared to his greatness, we can never earn him as a reward. We can never be obedient enough to enjoy him. We can never be holy enough. We could never be righteous enough. We could never enjoy him as our blessedness and reward unless God graciously makes a covenant. Unless God comes down to our level and makes promises by which we can enjoy him. Well, that's what's now expressed in verse 5 of Psalm 8. He says, you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Turning back to Hebrews uh, chapter 2, we pick up the exposition of this passage in verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 2. He cites this verse that we've just read. There's a couple of things to notice about this verse, however. If you have a New King James Version in verse 7, it probably has a footnote on a little. And the footnote on a little says, or for a little while. This is actually how it should be translated. It doesn't mean that God made man a little bit lower than the angels. It means that God made man lower than the angels for a little bit of time. For a little while, God made man in subjection to the angels. This is a reference to the covenant of works. The covenant of works was a probationary period for Adam. In the covenant of works, God comes to Adam and says, if you obey me, I will be your reward. And he put him into a state of probation, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And during that time period, Adam was being tested to see if he would obey God. And in obeying God, realize God as his blessedness and reward. Likewise, the, the, the author of Psalm 8, author of Hebrews quotes him, says you've made him a little bit lower for a little while than the angels. He goes on to say you've crowned him with glory and honor. Now it may sound like I'm splitting a hair here about a little while, but it's, it's this insight into this little phrase in Hebrew and Greek, both of the phrases mean this. This is why the author is talking about the world to come. You see that he's talking about a timeline. There's a world coming, and for a little while, man was made in subjection to the angels, underneath the angels, a little bit lower than the angels, with the implication that once that time period is over, man would be above the angels. Man would have dominion over all of creation. Paul the Apostle says this in the Corinthian letters when there's issues in the church and the Corinthians are showing themselves incapable of judging righteously. Paul rebukes them and says, do you not know, brothers and sisters, we shall judge angels? Do you not realize that those who are united to Christ have as their end... One of the purposes of our salvation is that you should reign as kings along with him. That you will be put in judgment seats, judging even the angels through union with Christ. We read, we, we read Revelation chapter 2. You remember the promise he gives in that chapter to one of the churches? To he who overcomes, I will give to sit with me on my throne. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Christ makes that promise to you, his people. That's where you're headed. 
That's what's going to happen. It's only for a little while that man was placed under the angels. He goes on and says, You've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. One other thing to notice about this passage from Psalm 8. In uh, verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 2, the author uses another very interesting word here. He's describing God's love and care for his people. He's describing what the Westminster Confession says is God's voluntary condescension. Him coming down to our level and making a promise with us. But the word that he uses in verse 6 is the same word that Paul uses to describe the office of a ruling elder. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, hopefully a very well-known verse to you all. Paul writes this to his young apprentice. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. In Greek, this word is episkopos. It's where we get the word episcopal from. Episkopos simply means an overseer, somebody who oversees and takes care of the flock. Well, Paul uses this word here. The author of Hebrews chapter 2 uses the verbal form of the same word to talk about God's love and care of mankind. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you episkopos him, that you oversee him, that you, as it says in Psalm 8, visit him. Now, There's a very important truth here. And we need to apply it firstly to the elders in the midst. John Calvin once said about the Sabbath commandment. If you read the Sabbath commandment, it says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and rested on the seventh day. You also do the same thing. John Calvin says that to know that we are imitating God is a great motivation to serving Him. It's a great motivation to obeying Him. Well, those of you that hold the office of elder, notice what the author is saying here. God Almighty is the chief elder. God Almighty is the chief bishop. God Almighty is the one who comes and is mindful of his people and visits them and episcopuses them. He oversees them. He cares and takes notice of them and what's going on in their lives. You in the office of ruling elder are doing a good work. And what a good work means is that you are doing God's work. The work that God Almighty Himself does. The work that God Himself performs. Peter will use the same kind of language in 1 Peter chapter 5 when he's exhorting the elders. He's saying to them, imitate Christ who is the chief shepherd. You as under-shepherds imitate the chief shepherd. Secondly, notice how he describes the work of eldering. Being mindful and visiting. God is mindful of his people. He thinks of them and he visits them. This is why in the Reformed tradition, pastoral visits, eldering visits have been a part of healthy churches. Elders go to the people's homes and see what is going on in their lives because they're mindful of them and they need to oversee their lives. This is something that's been going on in Reformed churches for centuries. Sadly, for most of us in our experience, this is not what we see. We are attempting at our church to be better about this. For the elders in the midst, myself included, take these things to heart. One, you're doing God's work. Secondly, we need to be better about God's work. For the congregation in the midst, this is what you should expect from your elders. This is what you should expect from your shepherds, that they are mindful of you and that they visit you, that they go out and seek you to see what's going on in your lives. And so, an elder visit to your home is not something to be afraid of. It's a grace of God that he sends his shepherds into your house. 
It's a grace of God that he, in the person of his elders, comes and visits you and sees what's going on. Secondly, you should expect this out of your elders and pray for this in our congregation and in our church. Finally, you need to understand what the office of ruling elder is for. Pastors do not run the church. Pastors do not run the church. Christ runs the church through all of his officers. The officers he's appointed are pastors and ruling elders. And the way you are to look at the government of the church is that Christ reigns as king and by his word and spirit in the hearts of all of the elders, he governs the church in their hands as a body of men. Pastors do not run the church. This is a common misconception in Reformed churches. It's a very common misconception in Reformed churches to think that the pastor, because he's the guy in the front, runs the whole show. That is not true. Ruling elders and teaching elders together run the church under Christ. This is the work that God does, and this is how God shows his love to his people. The author of Hebrews continues to expound. Notice what he says in verse 8. For in that he has put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. The author cites his passage, and then he gives a brief explanation trying to uh, expound what is actually being said. He explains... By saying, in verse 8, you have put all things in subjection under his feet, this means everything has been put in subjection to the feet of man. Man was intended to have dominion over all things in creation, not only the physical, but also the spiritual, as Paul says in the Corinthian letters. But then he he expounds it a little bit further. Notice what he says at the end of verse 8. But now... We do not yet see all things put under him. So the author cites this passage. It's describing God's relationship with man and what man was intended to be. Man was intended to rule and reign. But that's not what we see, is it? If God's word is true, we should see man ruling and reigning over all things. But that's not what we see. Now, he's going to explain this in verse 9, but, but what he's alluding to is the reality of death. By the fact of death that all men eventually die, we know that man is not in charge. Because he is subject to death. Romans chapter 8, Paul will describe it this way, is that God has subjected, same language as Hebrews 2, God has subjected the creation to futility. And that futility is death. Solomon laments this in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, it doesn't matter how wise you are. It doesn't matter how righteous you are because you can build a great mansion and eventually you'll die and give it to your son and he might be a fool. Who knows? you'll be dead, and your works will come to an end. It's the same kind of vanity, and it's the same kind of not ruling over all things that Hebrews 2 is speaking about. Now, understand how the author cites this passage. This is an important lesson for us as we read the Scriptures. He cites this, and then he brings an experience that all of us know about. Death and the decay of the body. Now, death is talked about in other parts of Scripture, but it's not explicitly stated in Psalm chapter 8. He brings this truth in to understand Psalm chapter 8 and to uh, expound it more fully. He's doing what is called systematic theology. He's taking passages in Psalm 8 and other truths from other passages of Scripture and bringing them together so that they make sense together. 
This, again, is part of what it means to understand the Word of God. Let me put it to you this way. In scholarship, whenever you read an author's works, take Tolkien, for instance. Tolkien wrote several books, and then he left even more papers that were unpublished. They're slowly being published. When authors go to read Tolkien's works, they go with an assumption that Tolkien was not insane, and that when he wrote, he wrote coherently. He had a general picture of what he was trying to do, and so you attempt to understand all of Tolkien's works as a coherent whole. Well, how much more of God in his works? How much more of God in his word? We, we know that God is not uh, beneath our reason. God is actually far above our reason. The, the fact that we are logical is because God himself is even more logical. God is coherent in everything that he does. And the goal of systematic theology is to try and understand how all of these things come together. How is it that all 66 books, written over the space of thousands of years, fit together? One of the, things that, uh, one of the reasons they fit together is because they all come from the same source. They all come from the same author. They all come from the same God. The author here gives us an example. And now in verse 9... He applies it to the one that holds the scriptures together. He says, we do not see all things put under him. And then in verse 9, he turns to Jesus. But we see Jesus. Now, this move that the author makes is sometimes uh, done in a very unscriptural fashion. Some of you may have seen... uh, I can't remember the name of the movie, but uh, it's the movie about the Scopes Monkey Trial. When William Jennings Bryan is there in Tennessee, and they wanted to teach evolution in the schools, and Clarence Darrow, I believe, is the attorney. Darrow is cross-examining William Jennings Bryan, and Darrow is asking him, well, what about the, the, the age of rocks and all these different things? And then Bryan says, I don't care about the, rock, uh, the, the ages of rocks. I care about the rock of ages. Now, we chuckle at that because we realize... We sympathize with this, but that doesn't answer the question. It's an unscriptural way of just turning to Jesus. That's not what the author's doing here. He turns to Jesus, and then he shows how this passage applies to Jesus. Notice what he does. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. Notice what the author does. He takes two elements in Psalm 8, two descriptions, lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. And he says, these don't apply to man, they apply to Jesus. He takes the description in the scriptures, looks at Christ, and says, he matches the description. He matches what's being said in Psalm 8, therefore it's about Jesus. Therefore, it's about Christ. Notice that Psalm 8 doesn't say anything about Christ, Jesus, the Messiah. doesn't say anything about that. It says, a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. Well, Christ, in the incarnation, was made a little lower than the angels. He's now crowned with glory and honor. He is the one the psalm is talking about because he matches the description This often is the way that Scripture will speak to us. Scripture will often give you a description of the righteous and the unrighteous. Scripture will often give you a description of what God's will looks like in the life of men. And under the power of the Holy Spirit, He gives you the ability to discern and then apply what the Scripture is describing in your life. Scripture is not explicit in everything we want it to be explicit about. Scripture doesn't give you the checklist. It tells you what a good checklist would look like. It tells you what a righteous life would be characterized by. It tells you the fruits that the righteous bear. And then it leaves it to you through prayer and discernment to judge for yourself. Look at one example of this. 
In Colossians chapter 3, we see an example of Paul doing this. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Um, yes, yeah, 3, verse 12. He says, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. What Paul has done is he said, look, there's a group of people that will be saved that are beloved by God. They're called the elect. The elect have these characteristics, long-suffering, humility, forgiving, patience, bearing with one another. And the way that he goes about it then is he says, you take these characteristics, you cultivate these descriptions of the elect, cultivate meekness, put on loving kindness, be humble, be gentle, be patient as the elect of God. Notice what he does not say. He doesn't say... Convince yourself that you're elect. Persuade yourself that you're one of God's chosen ones. That's not what he says. He says the elect are like this. Do you match this description? If you don't, you need to work to match that description under the grace of Christ. Later on he talks about the grace of Christ producing these things. Likewise, in Hebrews chapter 2, he follows this same kind of method. Now, there's a very important practical application. Like uh, Colossians chapter 3, we see Paul following this method. Likewise, in most of our lives, in all of our lives, this is how we need to interact with Scripture. Notice how things are described. Notice how the righteous are described. Notice the character qualities that the righteous are said to possess. And then look at your own heart and say, it says the righteous are humble. Am I humble? If you're not, repent and humble yourself. It says that the righteous are kind and gentle. Am I kind and gentle? If not, repent and cultivate kindness and gentleness. The Westminster Confession talks about our assurance, being confident that we are indeed in Christ. And it describes it in this way. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 18, the assurance of grace and salvation. Paragraph 2 of chapter 18, it says, this certainty or this assurance of faith is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope. But this assurance is infallible, founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation. The elect will be saved. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus will be saved. And the inward evidence of those graces unto which those promises are made. Notice the doctrine God's Word promises salvation to those who have these character qualities. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who suffer for righteousness' sake. Those are the graces the promise is made to. And so the point is, cultivate those graces. Cultivate those characteristics. And your assurance will grow. Your confidence will increase your knowledge and faith in the Scriptures will grow accordingly. That's how the author uses this here. But notice, there's one final thing about the Incarnation. In verse 9, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that He, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. The purpose of the Incarnation is to elevate humanity back to where it belongs. And the road to that crown, the road to man's dominion goes through the cross. That's why Christ had to die. That's why man lost his dominion because he sinned and now suffers death. 
Christ in the incarnation now is made a little lower than the angels and through the suffering of death is crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. I like what Chrysostom says about this verse. He says, when it said that Christ tasted death for everyone, it's like a doctor who might prescribe for you some type of medicine. Or perhaps when you were sick as a little child, asking, why am I sick? And, and mama makes you this medicine that may smell and taste weird. She'll take it and take a little sip of it so you can see her do it. She will taste it so that you know it's not dangerous. There's nothing to fear. Likewise, Christ tasted of death. He partook of it for everyone so that through Christ everyone might be persuaded you can only be saved through him. The only escape from death is through the one who tasted it. The only way to endure death and to be delivered from death is through the work of Christ because he tasted it for everyone. Now, I know what some of you are thinking because like me, you're good Presbyterians. The author is not saying that everyone will be saved. Nor is he saying that Christ died for everyone. He's saying that the power of Christ's death is available to everyone who will believe, to anyone who is part of humanity, and that's everyone. Christ tasted death. And the offer of the gospel is published broadly to everyone who hears the gospel. The reason your life is vain is because you will die. The only one who has tasted death and overcome is Christ. Believe in him and you will reign with him. Amen and amen. He's not going into election right here. He's not dealing with predestination. He is preaching the gospel outwardly and waiting upon the Spirit to do its work. And that's how the author proves that Christ reigns over the world to come. Remember that when you read your Bible, you're not just reading your Bible. When you read your Bible, you also need to think about your Bible. You need to pay attention to what the Bible describes. You need to bring in other passages of Scripture that deal with the same topic. And as you do this, you will grow in wisdom and knowledge and assurance. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that your word teaches us how to read your word. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us diligence and wisdom in searching through the scriptures that we might see glorious things about Christ, and in seeing these things, we might be assured in our faith that we indeed belong to him. Please give us repentance from the ways we have walked contrary to your word and contrary to the descriptions of those who believe in you. We ask finally, O Lord, that even as you are our great overseer and shepherd, you would enable us as elders and as congregants to perform this great work and to partake in this good work. And we ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.